starting a new series tonight. It's going to be our, our series that's going to go through the summer on the concept, the idea of identity. Who are we? It's a question that we ask a lot. It's a question that I'm sure some of you have been asking a lot. Who am I? What is this? I'm entering into a, a new phase of life. I've been in college for a few years now. College is winding down to an end. Who am I? What's my identity in Christ? How am I going to be, uh, or, or maybe not in Christ? Maybe some of you are out there just saying, hey, I'm, I'm not a Christian, and, and I know that, and I'm, but I'm still saying, okay, who am I? What's my identity? And the world's going to be willing to answer that in a lot of different ways for you. You can identify with your career. You can identify with your education. You can identify with a family. You can identify with possessions. You can identify with your appearance, whatever you want. But the reality is there's a day that's set in stone for every single one of us, and we don't know when that day is where we're going to be done here on this earth. And that identity that we've chosen here the question is, is that identity going to last beyond our final breath here on earth? Is there going to be significance beyond when I'm done here? Is there going to be anything left for me after I breathe my last and, and I'm done on this earth? And you may think, well, after I'm done on earth, I go straight back to dust. And you may think, well, after I'm done on earth, I'm going to go to heaven. You may think, well, whatever it is that you are, wherever you're at right now, I'm sure it's weighed on you to think about what do I want my life to be like? How do I want my life to count when all is said and done? What do I want to be remembered by? What do I want my legacy to be? And all those are questions that tie back into this whole concept of who are we? What is our identity? And that's where we're going this summer with this series and on the fresh retreat as well, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6, the beginning of it tonight. And as we get in there, uh, getting ready for this, this message, I was studying a little bit about the, the WITSEC program, witness protection, right? I always thought that was so cool. When you see it in the movies and the TV shows, somebody goes into witness protection. Francesca almost had to because she was a juror on a double murder case. And though I think she's okay, I don't think she's going to have to go into hiding or anything like that. But you see it, right? Somebody witnesses the crime and they're going to testify and they're afraid until the, the, the gentle cop comes and convinces them to testify while the angry cop is all mad that they're being cowardly or whatever. And then they go into WITSEC afterwards and you're like, man, that's so cool. But have you ever thought about what that process would be like? I looked up some information about it. Since its inception, it started in 1970, over 20,000 people have been put into witness protection in the United States. There's other programs in other countries, but in the United States, over 20,000 people in witness protection. Of those, about 95% of them are criminals. So that, like, that pure, innocent old lady that witnesses the, the, the murder and she's like terrified because the mob's coming after her, that person is not in witness protection. It's other mobsters that are wanting to, to get ahead in life or avoid their own sentences. And so they're the ones that are in witness protection. 95% are criminals themselves. The government spends $10 million a year on the witness protection program keeping people safe, funding them. In fact, if you enter into the witness protection program, they give you $60,000 to get on your feet for the first six months. And then they expect you to be able to take care of yourself after that. And a lot of the people in the witness protection program ended up going back into the crime that they knew because it's not like prison. It's not meant to be a, a rehabilitation program. And so you, you start to, to think about it, but then think about everything that they've got to go through. They're getting a, a new identity, a completely new identity. They're getting a new birth certificate, a new social security card. They're getting a new driver's license. If they've got kids, their kids are getting new school records. Like when you hear about, well, that's going to go on their permanent file or whatever. They're getting brand new permanent files that are fully updated. In fact, a lot of them ask that their kids' grades be modified to be better than they actually were. But that's, that's a total transformation. 
And they have to leave behind everything that they knew. They have to leave behind friends. They have to leave behind family. They have to leave behind their home. They have to leave behind their whole personhood of who they used to be when they enter into witness protection. And it's totally voluntary. They can leave at any time they want to leave, although it's not really recommended that they do so. In fact, one guy who left, he left to go back to his hometown for a family wedding, and he went back to his house, and the house was rigged to explode. As soon as he touched the front door handle, the house blew up on him. So it's a good idea to stay in witness protection when you're in witness protection. But what's the point? The point is that, that concept of a brand new identity, a total break with who you used to be, and, and all of a sudden you're, you're somebody that's brand new. A lot of them are allowed to keep their same first name because they want them not to slip up if they're introducing themselves. They want them to, to have something familiar to at least start this new identity off with. But it's just a, a total break. But why would they do that? Why would they go through all that? Why would they leave everything behind and, and be willing to adopt this new identity? Well, it's because they know that that's a, a better result, a better outcome than what the alternative is. They know that their life is better. Their life is more secure. Their life is safer. As, as hard as it may be to leave some of those things behind and to step into a new identity, they know that that's a better option than to stay who they were because of the danger that exists in that. And that's a little bit of what we're talking about when we're talking about the, the Christian life. It's a little bit of what Paul's been talking about in Romans chapter 5 before we get into Romans chapter 6. He says in chapter 5, verse 6, he says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us. For the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though maybe for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he's laying out the gospel there, saying God came after us because he loved us. Even while we were sinners, he wasn't saying, hey, clean yourself up and then I'll love you. He said, no, I, I will love you where you're at, in what state you are. I'm going to come after you with Christ even there. And then he talks about how there's this difference between the, the sin of Adam, which spread to all men, and, and the, the death of Christ, and the free gift of salvation and eternal life in Christ. If we will choose to follow Christ, to repent from our sins, to put our faith in Jesus, that new identity in Christ that we can have. And then he gets into chapter 6. And in chapter 6, verse 1, starting there, he says this. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What Paul's communicating here to the people that are reading this, to his original audience, and he's, what he's communicating to you and I is this. He's saying to, to live for Christ is so much better. To live as a new, uh, with that new identity of being a follower of Christ is so much better than anything else you've lived for in the past. Paul's opening question here is, is based on a conclusion that some people would have drawn. Look at, at Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. He says, the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, when you see the law, right? You, you guys all know this. You drive on the roads and you see that speed limit is set at 50. And how fast do you drive? 55. And what does that speed limit remind you of? That you're breaking the law, right? That you're speeding. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. Hey, we've got this, this set of laws that shows us that, that none of us, none of us in this room, myself included, none of us really measure up to that standard. All of us are, are 
imperfect in different ways. All of us sin is what the Bible says. We fall short of God's standard. Every single person, again, myself in that as well. Even Paul, who wrote this book, said that he is the chief of sinners. And so he's saying that, that where the law came, sin increased. But then he said this, but where sin increased, he said grace was there, abounding all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in other words, Paul's saying, as much as there is sin in your life, there's grace to meet that sin and forgive you. And so then there's this question that Paul anticipates. And I used to think, man, this is a stupid question. But guys, this is not a stupid question. As you're tracking with Paul's argument, this is a, a, a possible conclusion that we could make. This question, what should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may continue to abound? It's a logical outcome. Hey, if, if increasing sin brings God's grace all the more, and if God is glorified through forgiving sinners, sh should we just not continue to sin so that his grace is magnified? Let's magnify God's grace by just continuing to, to be sinful. It's not a dumb thought, but it's not a right thought either. And so Paul anticipates it and goes to correct it. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That word continue, it's, it's a word that means to persist in. Should we keep on sinning then, Paul? We're new creations. We're in our new identity now as followers of Christ. We've recognized, you know what? I'm at the end of my rope. I can't be, I can't save myself. I can't be a good enough person. I can't be holy enough. I can't please enough people. I can't make myself happy enough. No matter what I pursue, I'm at the end of myself. I need something else. And, and we've said, God is there. And we've said, Jesus, I need you. I need salvation. I need you to forgive my sins. And I believe that if I've put my trust in you for the forgiveness of my sins, that, that eternal life is mine. That as bad as life may be right now, there's coming a day where I'm going to be in paradise with you. If we're there, we're in our new identity. It, it doesn't follow that we should just keep on sinning then because we would say, well, God's grace is going to continue to forgive me. Whether that's the idea of, you know, sin is no big deal because, hey, God's grace is there, or whether that's the idea of, I want to glorify God by continuing to sin. You, you might say that that's crazy, that's ridiculous. But yet so many of us sometimes live that way. We persist and we continue in sin. There's areas of our lives that we say, okay, God, you can have part of me, but you can't have all of me. I'm going to hold back this area of my life that I know I need to let go of. I know I need to give up because it's not, it's not right. It's not good. It's sin. But God, you know what? Grace exists. So I'm not going to worry about that right now. Or maybe it's, you think about that area of your life where an impulse arises and you give in with little to no resistance. And in your mind, in the back of your mind, somewhere that rationalization kicks in and goes, yeah, but there's grace and I'll stop next time. See, so often we want some of God, but not all of God. And so we're right here. We're, we're asking the same question in Romans chapter six. We're just not as blatant about it. We're just not as upfront about it. We're saying, I, I want the new identity as, as a Christian. I want all the benefits of being a Christian, but I, I, I don't really want to have to let go of my old identity. It's like somebody who's saying, yes, I want the witness protection program, but hey, can I still live in my same house, have my same friends, keep my same name and my same driver's license and my same social security card and everything else because, man, it's going to be a pain to let go of all that stuff. And so Paul says, may it never be. He says, absolutely not. 
by no means should we continue in sin so that grace may abound. There needs to be a break with the old. There needs to be the new life that you're living in now. There's an incompatibility that we need to understand between sin and being a believer. Sin is a big deal because sin is, is a danger to us as Christians. In fact, that's our first point tonight. It's this. We need to recognize the danger of sin. Recognize the danger of sin. Sin is dangerous if it's not forgiven, right? It, it is. There's a danger of unforgiven sin. If we never come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible is clear and it, it teaches us that we will be separated from God for all of eternity in hell. And guys, it's our job as Christians not to apologize for that, but to warn people for that. To be pleading with people to say, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus for forgiveness for your sins. But even after we've come to Jesus, even as believers in a new identity in Christ, there's still a danger to us about our sin. Think about it this way. If you're in a, a shipwreck, the boat goes down like Jack and Rose style, and you're, you happen to be the lucky one. You're Rose up on the, the door of the, the boat that could have held two people, but for the movie's sake, Jack had to let go and drown. You're floating. You're going to survive, right? You guys are like, the Titanic, what in the world are you talking about? It's a, it's a historical movie. Don't worry about it. Um, but you're on that, you're, you're on that boat. You're, you're floating on that board, and you're like, Somebody come rescue me, and a rescue boat comes along. And they grab you, and they pull you on board the rescue boat, and they say, hey, hey, here's a, a life preserver. Put this on. And you take the life preserver, and you're on the boat, and you're, you've got the blankets wrapped around you, and you're getting warm, and you've got the life preserver, and you're safe, right? You're not in danger anymore of drowning. And yet at the same time, that ocean that's just over the boat is still as much of a danger to you as it once was. Just because the rescue boat is there, you're not going to be like, hey, you know, you guys mind if I go for a swim again really quick? I'm just going to jump in for a little bit. If, if you guys will just circle around for five or ten minutes and then come back and pick me up. But guys, that's what we do with sin as believers sometimes. We're in the rescue boat because God saved us. We've got the life preserver on of grace, and we think, you know what, I've got the life preserver on of grace, so I'm going to jump back in because I've got grace. But that's not what God's intended for us. He wants there to be that break. By no means, Paul says, absolutely not. Why? Because sin is dangerous. What does Paul tell Timothy later about sin? Does he say, get as close as you can to sin without really going too far with sin? No, he says what? He says, flee from sin, right? Run from it. We've talked about this before in this group, what Jesus said about sin. He said, look, if your right hand causes you to sin, it's, it's better that you cut it off and throw it away than for you to continue to sin. He's not taking that literally. Otherwise, none of us in this room who take Jesus seriously would have right hands, right? We would all be sitting here going, okay, whatever, we're, we're, we're amputees for Jesus. But what he's saying is we need to be radical about sin. Sin is dangerous. And we need to get rid of it, get it out of our lives. What can sin do to us? Well, number one, it, it can sear your conscience. Something that you once thought, you know, this is wrong and I would never do this. You begin to engage in that. And maybe it's, it's on the, the outskirts of that sin, and then it becomes easier to progress further and further and further and further until all of a sudden you're, you're so far into it, and you're going, man, I never thought I would get here before. And it becomes so easy for you to go and, and engage in that sin and walk away, and you don't even feel the pang of guilt that you once felt because sin has seared your conscience towards that. Sin can also hinder our prayers. 
Peter writes to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives. Live with your wives in an understanding manner. And he says, because if you don't, your prayers can be hindered. And you may say, well, I'm not married. Great. That doesn't mean that your sin isn't going to fall into that category of still hindering your prayer life with God. If you've got unconfessed sin, if you're, you've got sin that you're harboring in your life, that part of your life that you're saying, okay, God, you can have all of me, but not this side of me, then there's, there's a disconnect. There's a problem there. The other thing sin can do is it can hurt our testimony. As believers in Christ, right? If you say, hey, I'm a, a Christian, but then you go out and your sin is on full display in front of people who would say, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I know that you are and I'm watching what you're like. Are you living in such a way that they're looking at you going, what's the difference between us? Why would I bother to become a Christian if there's no difference, if there's no change? Sin can ruin relationships with others. It can hurt our horizontal relationships with each other. Not just hinder our prayers and our vertical relationship with God, but... but how we interact with each other, when we sin against each other. Yeah, we're always called to forgive, but there, there can still be a, a, a break in a friendship, a break in a relationship. Sin can make us feel like we're out of place in the church, right? It can make us feel like when we're walking into a building like this, like all eyes are on us. The reality is they're not, but because we're not right with the Lord in that moment, there, there's that feeling of, man, that hypocrisy, right, that can creep in. Sin can lead us to stop reading the Bible, stop spending time in the Word. There's a great quote that says, sin will either keep you from this book, the Bible, or this book, the Bible, will keep you from sin. When we have unchecked rampant sin in our lives, guys, that's going to lead us to to walk away from spending time in God's Word because we're not going to want the weight of conviction. I mentioned sin can hinder our prayers. Sin can full-on lead us to stop praying also. As Christians, we can't be comfortable with sin in our lives just because sin is forgiven. Just like when you're on that rescue boat and you've got that life preserver on. Yeah, you're safe. And yes, there's, there's a, a, a rescue boat right there for you in case you were to fall in again. But there should still be a healthy fear of that ocean. You should still be on that boat going, man, I don't want to go back overboard. I'm thankful to be on this boat. I want to stay right where I am. Paul's argument continues. He says, by no means. Should we continue to sin? By no means. He says this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Any of you guys ever watched the show Shark Tank? A couple. Okay, thank you for the shout. There's a guy on Shark Tank named Kevin O'Leary, right? And when somebody comes on and Kevin pitches a, a deal to them. It says, I want to buy for whatever. And, and it's usually a, a ridiculously unfair deal that he's throwing to them. And they, they deny it. Kevin looks at him and he says something to him. What does he say to them? He says, you're dead to me, right? That's not something that you should go around saying to other people. It's not something that's going to win friends for you. If you lose a ping pong, you look a, a, across the table and you're like, dude, you're dead to me. And just walk away from him, Right? It's, it's weighty. It's serious. It means like you don't even exist to me. You and I, we've got nothing to do with each other again. We're broken. Our relationship is completely severed. Paul's saying we've died to sin. 
so that as now believers in Christ in our new identity as followers of Jesus, we can look at sin and we can say, sin, you're dead to me. I'm dead to you. you we have no dealings with each other anymore. It's a shift in mindset. It's beginning to look at our sin and saying that sin is not part of who I am anymore. And so, for instance, our prideful thoughts about ourselves, whenever we begin to entertain those thoughts in our minds, we can now in Christ go, you know what, that's, that's not right. I need to think of myself correctly. I need to think not too highly of myself. The praise that I'm giving myself, I need to turn and I need to give that to God. Or maybe it's our, our covetousness of somebody else's life. We look at their life and we think, man, if I only had what they have, life would be so much easier. And, and all of a sudden, as believers in Christ, now we are dead to sin. We've got that, that break with sin such that now we feel convicted and we say, wait a minute, I need to be thankful for what God has provided for me. Thankful for the life that I do have. Thankful for the blessings that I do have. Or maybe it's our anger that before Christ was just blow-ups at the drop of a hat. But now in Christ... That anger is held in check because we remember, we remember God's patience towards us, his kindness towards us, his forgiveness towards us. And so there's a break. There's that shift in mindset. We look at those things and we say, that's not who I am anymore. There's, there's a, a shift in my identity. I'm now dead to sin. Paul's not saying here that none of us are going to sin. But he's saying that desire to keep on sinning is going to be replaced by that awareness that that's not who we are anymore. And he uses baptism to illustrate. He says this, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been, this is verse three, baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. What sort of baptism is Paul talking about here? I think he's talking about water baptism. I think he's talking about the, the, the picture, the physical picture of what happens when we become saved. That, that, that identification with Jesus' death and with his resurrection. Maybe you're in this room and you've never seen a, a baptism. Maybe some of you have been baptized. Not all of you have been baptized. And you're thinking, well, what is it all about? Well, it's that thing where we bring that, those tanks that look like giant bathtubs on stage, right? On Sunday morning or Saturday night. And the water's always just a little bit colder than you like it to be, especially if you're standing in there for all the baptisms. And the water creeps up the shirt and it's just not comfortable. But anyways, if you're being baptized, what happens? You, you go down, you, you step into that tank and you stand up there and you say, look, this is who I am. This is now who I am in Christ. This is my story of how my identity went from somebody who's not a believer to now being a, a Christian. And then the pastor says, it's my pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that person is taken down under the water by the pastor and then brought back up out of the water. And it symbolizes just what Paul's talking about here, that we were buried, united with Christ in a death like his. That's what going down under the water in baptism symbolizes. So that, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. But that first concept there, that we've been united to, identified with fully to the death of Jesus so that we are no longer who we once were. So that Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And y'all, that's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to take the old and make it new, the broken and make it whole, the wounds, the hurt, and make them healed, the sin, and make you holy. 
And he wants to do that through Christ, through our new identity and union with Christ. Our second point tonight is this, rejoice in the change that comes with salvation. Rejoice in the change that comes with salvation, that, that we are dead to sin. There's a finality about death, yes? Some of you have experienced it personally. There's a finality about standing there at the graveside when the body inside the coffin is lowered into the vault that's then taken and lowered down into the ground and then the six feet of earth are piled back on top of it and then new sod is laid on top of that and the headstone is put in place. There's a finality about that that says there's a, a break there. They're not here any longer. They're not going to be a part of my life for right now the same way that they once were a part of my life. Sometimes that's a really hard thing. Often, most often, that's a really hard thing. But for us, when we think about our death to sin, it's not a hard thing, it's a good thing. Just like if you thought about somebody who was after you and they wanted to hurt you, they wanted to harm you, they wanted to hurt your family or harm your family, and then that person met their end, there would be a, a relief about that, right? We don't rejoice in the death or even the death of the wicked as, as God even makes clear, but there would be something about that that you're like, you know what, there's, there's a freedom that I feel now. I don't have to look over my shoulder anymore. That's us with sin, guys. There's a break there. There's that finality. There's that change that comes with salvation that you are now dead to sin. The sin no longer has the same hold and power over you that it once had. And what does that look like? Well, it's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, when he says that we have been made like Christ, when he says that, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be our sin, so that in Christ we might become his righteousness. So that God looks at us and he sees it as though we died with Christ when Christ died for us. Well, that's what Paul says when he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been what? crucified with Christ, with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I'm gone. I'm dead. I'm, I'm buried. The old man is gone. The new is here. It's no, long, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, one died for all, therefore all died. This identification with the death of Christ is some of the best news ever because we can leave sin behind. See, all of you know the emptiness of the promises of sin. Sin that promises to fill us with joy only to leave us feeling empty and hurting. Sin that promises power only to leave us feeling used. Sin that promises euphoria only to leave us feeling dirty and powerless. Sin that promises hope, only to leave us depressed. Sin that promises satisfaction, only to lead us, leave us still searching. Sin that promises an escape from reality, but in the end, reality is always still waiting. And apart from Christ, we're, we're trapped in that cycle of chasing after satisfaction and fulfillment in sin. 
going from one round to the next round to the next round to the next round, feeling like it's going to be the, the hit that I need the next time. It's going to be the satisfaction I need the next time. It's going to be this relationship. It's going to be this pursuit. Whatever your sin is that you struggle with, and we all have sin, and we all have the different ones, whatever it was before Christ or wherever you're at right now, and you feel that, man, every day is a grind because you wake up going, I don't know where my hope is going to come from today. I don't know where my satisfaction is going to come from today. I don't know where my joy joy is going to come from today and you've been looking everywhere but Christ let me encourage you and plead with you tonight to turn to Christ because he's the answer that sin can't provide for you see that our union with Christ has freed us from all of that the deceitfulness of sin we sang it no longer a slave to fear. We could sing, I'm no longer a slave to sin because I'm a child of God. And it frees us up to, to choose now to, to not sin. To choose not to drink. To choose not to entertain covetous thoughts, lustful thoughts. To choose not to entertain hurtful thoughts towards somebody else to choose not to say certain things to someone that's going to hurt them or certain things that would not be good, not be helpful, to choose not to be bitter and angry. And you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, right, that's a, a pipe dream. That's a nice utopian ideal, but that's not reality. But I want to challenge you on that and say that that, that can be reality. That can be reality. See, the Bible is abundantly clear. Jesus, in, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him, right, and says, hey, t tell me about what you're teaching. And what does Jesus say? If you want to see heaven, you must be born again. You must be changed, transformed, made new. And then Nicodemus is sitting there going, uh, what? He's saying that, uh, you're crazy. In fact, he literally looks at Jesus and says, I can't get back inside my mama's womb. You've lost it, Rabbi is what he's telling Jesus. But Jesus was driving at not physical rebirth, but spiritual rebirth. And that's what makes it possible for us now to look at sin and say, sin, you're dead to me. I'm dead to you. I don't have to give in to you anymore. So promise everything you want to promise, but it's all lies and, and I'm not going to buy it anymore because my identity is now in Christ. My hope is now in Christ. My joy is now in Christ. I know that this world is not my home. And so you can throw all your promises at me you want, but it's falling on deaf ears now. The power for that type of change comes through Christ. It doesn't come through anything else. And if you're sitting out there going, I don't know what that power is like, you can know what that power is like tonight. Through faith in Jesus. There's hope in Christ, hope in the gospel, transformation at that level available to you in the gospel. The apostle Paul, case in point, he was a guy that was going out murdering Christians, hated the church. And maybe some of you guys are here tonight and you're like, you know what? I'm there. I'm with Paul before his salvation. I don't like Christians and I don't like the church. God took somebody who was where you're at, in fact, worse than where you're at, because he was literally killing Christians. And he said, Paul, I'm going to turn your world upside down. 
I'm going to change you. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to forgive you. Paul, you, the Pharisee, who's been trying to be good enough your entire life, Paul, I'm going to show you that you can't measure up. You can't be good enough. You can't trust in yourself. Paul, I'm going to show you that you need Jesus. And Paul's life was flipped. Flipped so radically. But it's not just the death of Jesus that we're united to. It's not just that we've been dead to sin. It's also what? His resurrection. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as, just like Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Guys, the resurrection was earth-shattering news when it happened. And Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was living at the same time as Christ was there. Paul was living at the same time as as the early disciples, as the church was blowing up. And Paul eventually had to come face to face with the resurrected Jesus to go, okay, I I get it. I'm, I'm there. I'm with you. But even in the book of Acts, as the first disciples were standing up and saying, look, we're here to tell you about Jesus and the fact that he rose from the dead. The people that were there in Jerusalem, when all this stuff went down, none of them stood up and shouted them down and said, you guys are lying because there's his body over there in that grave. You just went to the wrong tomb. In fact, think about it. The Jews who hated what the early church was doing. You don't think if they knew that they could go to the tomb and say, hey guys, this, this purported Messiah's body, it's right here. And nobody did. Why? Because Jesus literally rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, just as he was raised from the dead to walk in newness of life, you and I now as believers in our new identity in Christ can walk in newness of life. In fact, that's the purpose of our salvation. You've been united to the death of Christ in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you too might walk in newness of life. Your life can turn around. Your life can transform from what it was. You know, it's interesting. It's a paradigm shift because in the opening question of chapter six, it's like, hey, should we glorify God by sinning so that grace may be magnified? Paul says no. And by verse four, he's saying, you want to glorify God, glorify God by walking in newness of life. That's what it means when he says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. The glory of God was on full display when Jesus walked out of the tomb. And now Paul is saying to you and I, just as if you want to glorify God somehow, it's not through sinning so that his grace abounds, it's through walking in newness of life so that he's glorified through your life. Our final point tonight is this, live like Jesus for Jesus. Live like Jesus as he was raised, just as he was raised. Live like Jesus for Jesus, to magnify him, to glorify him. What does it mean to live like Jesus? Well, think of the picture of Jesus in the Gospels. Think of his love for others. Think of his compassion that he had. Remember when he's teaching and, the, and the, the, the little children start to run up because they want to they see Jesus. They want to get close to Jesus. And the disciples are like, man, get out of here. And think about the, the heart that Jesus has and says, no, 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 let them come. Let them come to me. Or the woman who was caught in adultery, who's drugged before Jesus and laid at his feet and the Pharisees are standing there going, we caught this woman in adultery, Jesus. The law says we should stone her. What, what, what should we do? 
Think about Jesus' compassion and forgiveness when he looks around at them and he says, anybody here who doesn't have sin, pick up the stone and throw it at her. And it's the one person who didn't have any sin, Jesus, who had the right to pick up the stone, but instead he looked at the woman caught in adultery and he said, woman, if no one here is here to condemn you, I'm not gonna condemn you either. And he forgives her and he says, go and sin no more. Live like Jesus, the love, the compassion, the concern for others, the passion for God that Jesus had that he woke up early to go and pray because he wanted to communicate and be with his father. The commitment to God's will to say, I'm gonna do nothing apart from God. I'm gonna only do what God wants me to do. That's some of what it looks like to walk in newness of life. So as we think about that here in the church, guys, it's so easy to play the comparison game in here to look left and right and be like, well, how am I doing compared to this person or that person? We gotta stop that. The aim is not your neighbor. The aim is Christ. It's not, I want to live a little bit better than my neighbor. It's not like the the grizzly bear chasing me in the woods, right? I don't have to be faster than the bear. I just have to be faster than my buddy who's with me. That's not how sanctification works. It's not like I don't have to be as holy as Jesus. I just have to be holier than the the buddy next to me. I just have to, to not be in the back of the class. So often that's how we live together. But that's not walking in newness of life. On the flip side, guys, we also have to set aside trying to be holy enough. Thinking that your acceptance before God comes in your track record this past week, it doesn't. It doesn't. That idea of saying, man, I've got I've to be good enough, be holy enough, clean myself up enough so that God will love me more. It's, it's not going to happen. You're always going to feel at the end of that like, I could have done more. I didn't do enough. I slipped up. I sinned here. And you're just going to live in fear and live in a state of feeling like uh, like a failure and like a hypocrite. We have to set aside the facade and we have to look at Jesus. Just as he was raised from the dead, we must also walk in newness of life. Jesus, the humility of Christ, the servant-minded love of Jesus, his grace, his forgiveness, his patience, his faithfulness, his gentleness, Jesus is the aim of our lives. We are to live like Christ for him. Y'all, the Christian life isn't meant to be a burden for you. It's not meant to be a burden for us. It's not meant to lay impossible standards on you to make you feel like dirt when you don't measure up. It's not what I want you to, to think of when you think of the church and when you think of Christianity. And that's what so many people out there do teach about what Christianity is like and what it's all about. But guys, that's not it. God doesn't want you to be in here and just miserable and feeling like dirt and feeling wretched and feeling beaten up. God wants you to be in here and feeling excited and feeling joyful and feeling thankful and feeling like you are forgiven by Jesus because you are forgiven by Jesus if you have trusted in him as your savior. There's no sin that he can't forgive, that he doesn't want to forgive, that he's not ready to forgive. I want to be like Jesus. I need to be more like Christ. It's so easy for me to slip into that mindset of I've got to prove myself to God. But when I think about it, when I think about a text like this, man, I'm so thankful that I've died to sin. So thankful that I've been united with Christ in his death and with his resurrection. 
it drives me to say, man, I want to walk in newness of life. What's going to drive that is a love for Christ. That's what's going to drive that. Nothing else will last. If there's anything else that motivates you to be a Christian, if there's anything else that motivates you to be here other than loving Jesus, it's not going to last. It may last a few days or a week, but it's eventually going to die out. I know because I've been there. I've lived that Christian life out of duty and not out of delight, not out of love for Christ. I felt the weight of trying to measure up and just feeling like I'm not good enough because I, I sin during the week. It's not going to work if your motivation and your drive is anything other than I love Jesus and I want to live like him because I love him. Let me encourage those of you who have been discouraged by Christianity, been discouraged by the church. I want to encourage you and suggest to you gently if I can that the reason that you've been discouraged and put off by the church is because you haven't encountered the genuine gospel of Christ. You haven't encountered people who love you like Christ has called us to love you. You haven't been offered forgiveness in Jesus that doesn't say, hey, you've got to clean yourself up in order to be forgiven. You haven't been offered the hope of a gospel that says you will be forgiven, you will be guaranteed from that moment forward as a follower of Jesus that you have nothing to fear anymore. You haven't been brought on to the rescue boat. You haven't been given the life preserver. And so tonight, I just want to encourage you that what you are frustrated with, what you are disenchanted with is not Jesus. It's not the true gospel. It's something else. So tonight, I want to hold out to you all the true gospel again and to say to you, the answer tonight, the hope tonight to break out of that cycle of, of waking up tomorrow morning going, where's my purpose? Where's my reason for living going to come from today? The answer tonight is to come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Your identity can change tonight in an instant if you will repent from your sins, which just means to say, you know what? I'm, I'm right there with witness security. I'm done with that life. I'm done with all my pursuits. I'm done with my sin. And now you're turning and you're saying, it's going to be Jesus from now on for me if you will repent from your sins, if you will trust that Jesus Christ died for your sins so that he's paid the penalty. God's not asking you to pay back anything, to pay any penalty yourself because Jesus paid it for you. If you will trust that he did that, tonight you can be forgiven, you can be reborn, you can be made new, you can be totally transformed from dead to life, and that is a game changer for the rest of your life. So let me plead with you and urge you to do that tonight. Stop being mad at Christians who did a lousy job at being Christians to you. Start understanding that God still wants you, still loves you, still is coming after you with the gospel, and tonight make that decision and be brought from your old identity to your new identity and the hope and the joy that comes with that. If you're here tonight as a believer, step into your new identity in Christ. Examine your life and say, man, am I like that person in Whitsack that's like, yes, Jesus, I, I want you, but I, I need to hold on to these things back here. And, and Jesus is saying, no, I, I want all of you. And I've got some, something that's so much better than those things that you're holding back from me right now. To give it all over. 
Identity, again, it's one of those things that all of us wrestle with at some point in time in our lives. Who am I? How am I going to be remembered? What's my hope in? What gets me up in the morning? What sustains? I mean, these are all those questions of identity that we all have come face to face with at some point in time in our lives or the other. The, the, the question really is, where are you going to center your identity? And let me encourage you, like I said at the beginning, there's one identity that will transcend our final breath here. And that's having your identity anchored in Christ through the gospel and living no longer alive to sin, but dead to sin and alive to Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this reality. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, that you have held out the gospel to us. Lord, none of us in this room are holier than another person. None of us in this room need less of the cross than anyone else. We all need the fullness of it. God, we all need Jesus. Lord, we're so grateful that you didn't abandon us. You didn't leave us, that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins because of your great, enormous, huge love for us. God, I, I don't want us, any of us in this room to look at that and walk away from it, to think that there's something else that we can identify with that will be better for us. There's not, God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know it because we've searched for so long. Lord, show us Show us how good and right belonging to you through Christ is. Lord, transform anyone in this room. God, I, I would pray even tonight who's not made that decision. Lord, tonight, I, I pray that it would be that night to make that decision for you. And that that transformation, that it takes the rest of our lives, Lord. There's still things and there will always be things between now and eternity that you're showing in my life that I, I look at and I say, okay, that's the old life. I need to get rid of that. I need to let go of that. I need to turn that over to Christ. There's this progress of growing more and more like Christ. But Lord, I pray that for each and every student in this room, God, my honest desire would be that they would walk out tonight knowing that their identity is in Christ, changed forever for the better. In Christ's name we pray, amen.